Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. When approaching a sequel to Star Wars, John Williams was able to revisit and expand upon that galaxy far, far away. But scoring Empire Strikes Back couldn't have been as easy as he made it seem. This is The Soundtrack Show. Empire Strikes Back, second of the Star Wars films on location in Norway. With a budget of $18 million and rising, the snow has to be real. It's a test of endurance for the cast, the crew and the equipment. The organization and the money behind a film of this scale are beyond most people's imaginings. There's explosions going on all around here. Okay. Yet when the editing is finished, the pressure will focus on one man whose work can make or mar the end result. The composer, John Williams. Success can be terrifying. Hello and welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is kicking off our look at the musical score for Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, a movie from 1980, executive produced by George Lucas, produced by Gary Kurtz, directed by Irvin Kirshner, with a score by John Williams. John Williams, by 1980, had been composing film and TV music for more than 20 years. When Star Wars debuted in 1977, the soundtrack for Williams' score to Star Wars quickly became the best-selling classical album of all time, and was an essential major ingredient to the success of the film's tone, its feeling of swashbuckling adventure, and it gave that grandiose operatic treatment to that galaxy far, far away. I'm sure the success of that was nice for John Williams. I mean, it earned him an Academy Award, after all, and his career really took off to even greater heights than it had already been at, and he was a very in-demand composer at the time already. Between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, between that time period of 1977 to 1980, Williams scored several films, big films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Fury, Jaws 2, Superman, Dracula, and Spielberg's wartime comedy, 1941. But then, he had to come back to Star Wars. How do you go back to the well? How do you top your previous huge success? I mean, is it wise to even try? Can you recapture lightning in a bottle? When I say that success can be terrifying, I mean that success then sets a bar that you have to, at the very least, continually hit, and more importantly, if you can, grow to even greater success than that. That's a daunting and, yes, terrifying task, to say the least. 
Where does an athlete go after winning a gold medal at the Olympics or winning the Super Bowl? What does a writer do after their novel goes to number one on the New York Times bestseller list? How do you top unprecedented success as a filmmaker, or in this case, a film composer? Let's give a little context for Empire. Shortly after Star Wars, director George Lucas decided that he was tired of being controlled by the studio system, tired of needing their money, and tired of sharing essentially half of the profits for them doing little more than loaning him money and then distributing the finished product. So with the sequel to Star Wars, George Lucas bet everything he had. Empire was going to be, largely, an independent film. According to the book George Lucas, A Life by Brian J. Jones, Lucas netted about mm, $12 bucks after taxes on Star Wars box office by 1978. That's not nearly enough to achieve the kind of studio independence that he wanted. But, and this is a very famous story that we won't get into on this podcast, toy sales and merchandising gave him enough equity to take out his own bank loan for the sequel to Star Wars. That's right, he was going to pay for this himself. At an estimated budget of $21 million, well, it started at 18 and then just kept climbing north, Empire was going to be very expensive to make. I mean, just to get it all done, Lucas was now running a visual effects unit called Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, a sound unit called Sprocket Systems, later to be renamed Skywalker Sound, a toy licensing branch, which at the time was named Black Falcon, and a production company in England called Chapter 2 that was building at least $3 million worth of sets at Elstree, some of which got very damaged by rain and a giant fire that broke out. Anyway, the pressure to succeed at this very, very expensive gamble was incredibly high. And the script that Lucas was developing was also really different than the success that he had with Star Wars. Shortly after Star Wars came out, after the first film, Lucas had become deeply influenced by an American philosopher named Joseph Campbell and his novel, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, this is a book which deals with culturally universal trials and tribulations that our mythological heroes face throughout what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey. In other words... Lucas was envisioning a very different Star Wars than this kind of light, fun, heroic romp that we saw in the first film. This was one where the enemy was going to have the upper hand, and Lucas was going to put our heroes, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, through a lot of difficult tests. In fact, before he even had the script, he already had the name. The Empire Strikes Back. So knowing all of this... The story of making The Empire Strikes Back is almost as compelling and as nail-biting as the story of the actual film, when you consider what Lucas was trying to do to emancipate himself from the studio system and their money. Before I get to the music, it's important that we recognize the major story risks of this film. One is, like I mentioned, that it was darker, with the Empire having the upper hand. The other is that much of the middle film was going to be centered around a small, frog-like Jedi master named Minch Yoda, later shortened to just Yoda. And Lucas ultimately figured out how he was going to do it. He decided to collaborate with someone he absolutely loved and was very uh, like George Lucas, which was a creative named Jim Henson. But more on Yoda later. For now, I want to focus on that first one, on bringing the darkness of Empire to life with music. 
in a way that doesn't feel too much like a departure for Star Wars, because on paper, this is already starting to look like a very different film. With so much at stake, how do we make sure that this feels like a Star Wars movie? Enter John Williams. As that clip said at the top of this episode, ultimately, at some point in the filmmaking process, it all comes down to the work of just one person when you finally get to the music. I would argue that after the director and the writers, no one else has as great a sole contribution as the composer, especially in this case with so much at stake. It was up to Williams to bring it on home and make sure that this film felt like a Star Wars film. It was proven, after all, in 1977, that the music was a critical ingredient in making Star Wars work. <laughs> no pressure, Mr. Williams. It all started with a spotting session, where John Williams met with the executive producer George Lucas, the producer Gary Kurtz, the director Irvin Kirshner, who we'll refer to as Kirsch, and the editor Paul Hirsch, who was also the editor on Star Wars. They sat and they watched the film in its very, very rough form to discuss the nature of the music that was needed for Empire and how music was going to play itself out. Lucky for us, there's footage of this spotting session, courtesy of the BBC. Now, we're going to play a little bit of it, and in it, you can hear just how rough the audio is as the movie is being assembled in the editing stage. The scene that we'll hear takes place on a set in Elstree Studios, the set for the carbon freezing chamber. Now, at this point, there are no sound effects from Ben Burt in the cut. There's just the noisy production sound, meaning the sound that the boom operators recorded on the set for reference. And that production sound consists of like steam being blasted by, by crew members all around this very hot set, which was elevated way above the stage floor. The dialogue is, because it's so noisy, the dialogue is unusable. So some of the shots that you'll hear, is, and it goes by very fast, some of the shots contain just the looped Carrie Fisher dialogue, while others are just totally inaudible because of steamy set noise. You can even hear actors behind the masks of Boba Fett, Darth Vader, and Chewbacca. It's in this rough form that Williams sees and hears the movie for the very first time. And of course, it is completely void of music. Although the film is far from finished, it's possible to compare the effect of this sequence where the Princess Leia has to watch space pilot Han Solo being put into a carbon freezing chamber with and without music. Here it is on its own. I love you. I know. What's, okay. what, what scene are we... This is the beginning of the carbon freezing chamber. He's emerging as... Composing for films is always done under pressure. Sometimes the composer may see a script in advance, but his first practical involvement is usually the spotting session, when he sits down with the director to plan where music is needed, and equally important, where it isn't. Is that the, yeah, that's the beginning of the real beginning of the rescue. Real rescue. That's an important moment. And yeah. and he's he's Landau's beginning beginning to really to emerge as a as a as right. a goodie. Right. Every director is very different. Some have no idea at all. They say, "Here's the film. Do the best you can. Put music wherever you like." And others are very specific. And some are very expert at it. With some, there are disagreements. With some whose feelings won't won't synchronize with the composers. My experience has been vast with these people. In those looks, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, those, it can uh, build. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Very good. Uh, 
For the new Star Wars film, the music spotting session involves, besides John Williams, the producer Gary Kurtz, director Irving Kirshner, and the man who wrote the story and directed the first Star Wars, George Lucas. Yeah, well, we keep music. the tension going yeah. because it really, Great story. Uh, yeah, this is important in here. You know, we might, we might, doesn't that grate open now? Yeah, the grate yeah. opens. There, and yeah. Closes, yeah. And it closes again. Right At now. this stage, the film is almost completely edited as far as the picture is concerned. But the soundtrack is only a very rough working version, with odd effects cutting in and out, and dialogue often difficult to hear, or even missing altogether. What's going on, buddy? You're being put into cover, please. The Empire will compensate you for your loss. Put him in. Stop, Chewie! Stop! 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 Listen to me! Stop! Oh, please! Oh, hey! Hey! Listen to me! Chewie! Chewie! This is marvelous. This is very touching here, I think. I, I need you to protect her. All that. I love that. Is that... That's where it was. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of the princess. Of what? It's the same curve. Yeah. The kiss. Yeah. Very good. Now the great moment. I love you. I know. <laughs> what are you going to say? Yeah. I love you too, Violin. Now, after the spotting session, the real work and pressure begins. Williams needs to take this information that he just got and compose at a very quick pace. The music in the picture, an action picture, and particularly a film like Star Wars II, The Empire Strikes Back. This this generally active music, it's fast, it, the tempos are quick, there are a lot of flourishes in the orchestra and so on, it's noty. So that it's a tremendous uh, a physical job of, of just getting the notes down. In fact, I'm, I'm a little edgy about having done only eight minutes, I think, this week. Measure two really is Darth Vader's ship. We see the, we see the Imperial ship there. Hence the, the, the big Vader theme at that bar. But Finally, at the end of a long day, he goes through the score with Herbert Spencer, who will arrange it for orchestra the next day. So here, 25 seconds point one, some little objects float by the window. And the, the strings would be sustained here. But if the celeste, sounding loco, I think, Herb. There's an old joke about composing for film that goes, do you want it good or do you want it tomorrow? With only six weeks to the recording sessions and over a hundred minutes of music still to be written, inspiration has to be immediate. I suppose composers for centuries have complained about this. I, I think of, of Mozart having to produce a mass for Sunday for the Archbishop or Haydn writing something for Esterhazy on demand. Let me have a new symphony for Thursday night's dinner. I suppose it's as old as, as the art of writing music. Now we come to a kind of a tutti, which is this thing with strings and horns. Body, horn trio, strings, double notes and cellos and basses. In just over six weeks, with the aid of his orchestrator, Herb Spencer, John Williams wrote a sequel to his biggest hit. Six weeks. In total, Williams wrote over 125 minutes worth of music for Empire. That means he wrote at least 21 minutes a week, or three minutes of music a day, by hand. 
Empire is filled with music, and the album is filled with uh, concert arrangements that don't even appear in the film. But there's so much music guiding each dramatic step of the way in Empire, informing us of danger or relative safety, humor, mysticism, tension, release, action, and romance. But let's remember that the Star Wars score is one of dramatic themes. Williams heavily employed the Wagnerian, classic Hollywood style of musical themes, or leitmotifs, for characters and situations when making Star Wars. The heroic main title, right? That main title would make a return at the top of Empire. The daring rebel fanfare. The sorrowful but gorgeous power of Leia's theme. The ancient light that rises out of darkness that can be heard in the Force theme. And there are so many more. Well, the most famous theme that John Williams was about to write for The Empire Strikes Back would not only hold up against the strength of the original themes in the first Star Wars, but it would go on to become one of the most famous and important musical themes to ever emerge from the Star Wars saga. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. All right, here it is, Jen. Shh, shh, shh. Settle down, boy. Six, three, one, five, seven. Imperial March, one of the most famous and important pieces from the entire saga. Its immediacy, its power, its simplicity, adorned with complex orchestration, set the perfect tone for the darkness that lay at the core of the sequel. It enhanced it, but at the same time, it somehow managed to feel perfectly like Star Wars. That is, it was still in the spirit of the original film. It kind of manages a tightrope walk over this vaudeville net of mustache-twirling villainy, but is totally balanced by its ability to survive multiple dramatic permutations, meaning it plays fast, it plays slow, it plays as a march, it plays as a dramatic stinger for scene change, and it always sends the same effective message. In many ways, the Imperial March is the sound of the Empire hitting back at the Rebellion. It is the darkness that is featured in this sequel. Let's talk about this piece musically. One of the things that didn't weigh on Williams as much on the second film was the amount of classical music that he had to follow from the temp score like he did in the first film. Yet he clearly still took influences in clever ways from the past and music from the past. What Williams seems to have done here in composing the Imperial March is take the feeling of, say, something like the throne room scene from Star Wars
that kind of big, bold, brassy march, and combine that military-esque might with something that was clearly darker. A funeral march, for example. I want to listen to a piece by Frederick Chopin. This is a piece called Funeral March. And let's keep the Imperial March melody in our minds. similarities. In a poetic twist, Williams is able to employ elements of this funeral march by Chopin into the Imperial March to instantly communicate to us, the audience, that death itself is relentlessly marching toward our heroes in the rebellion. Again, a film composer's job is to be in service of story, and using this kind of music informs us, effectively and immediately, of the power and terror of the Empire. Vader's fleet is creeping death. And musically, the piece itself has the same sort of dotted rhythm as the main title, placing it into a familiar rhythmic pattern. Bum, bum, ba 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 bum, bum, ba 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 bum, 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 ba bum, 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 ba 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 bum, 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 ba bum, bum, ba bum, ba 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 bum, bum. You get the idea. It has that sort of dotted note, lilting swing type of feel with triplets. Now, harmonically, meaning the notes that Williams employs, the Imperial March sounds awfully complicated, especially with the wonderful chromatic twists and interval jumps that Williams takes in the second half of the main melody. Now, don't get me wrong, it starts out simple. Very memorable. In fact, it repeats that just up here. Now, where it really starts to get twisted, though, is in the second half of the main melody. It jumps up the octave, and then walks down chromatically, and then sits on a very disturbing chord, which we'll talk about in a second. More chromatic walking. Right, and then it repeats. And then goes back to the top. Now that second half of the melody with all that chromatic walking and stuff is, in my opinion, what really makes this piece so incredibly unique. It gives us something simple at at the top so that we'll recognize this upon repeat listen. It's, It's an earworm. Gets right into our ear. But then it goes off and develops in this way that is so unique to Williams with all that chromaticism and those strange chords. Anyway, this piece sounds complicated, but actually, there's really only three chords in this piece, and for the most part, it just rocks back and forth between, you know, the one minor and a flat six minor, and then back and forth. That's all it's really doing there, right? One minor, flat six minor, back to one minor. But then there's this devil tone in the middle. Which is the tritone where we started. And that's what gives the twist in the melody. And so, even though there's only three chords, the chords that are there, they're all minor. 
The reason that's significant is because even a minor scale features some major chords, but in this case, it's minor upon minor, which gives the whole feel an almost diminished type of sound. Because of this, there's a kind of purity in its darkness. Now, like many of you, I've been studying this movie for a long, long time. And at one point, I actually created a spreadsheet to track the number of times certain melodies are heard throughout this movie. Now, normally, I don't get into numbers until we're done chatting about a movie, but I'll at least say this in this first episode. The Imperial March is, by far, the most heard melody in The Empire Strikes Back. Let's take a moment to chat about where this melody is heard. Most people think that the first time you hear this melody is when the fleet of Star Destroyers is introduced right before Vader's first scene. It's probably the most complete, longest, and most bold statement of the film. We hear the entire main melody here. We better start the evacuation. But this is not the first time we hear this piece. The first time we hear it, in a very, very sneaky way, is right after the title crawl. We see a Star Destroyer, and right before it launches probes into outer space, we hear this. Did you hear the Imperial March? No? Well, neither did most of us for many, many years. But it's there. In a register that is higher than what we're paying attention to, the piccolo, an instrument like a flute, but even higher in pitch, plays the melody over the top, here. So you got all this crazy string and brass stuff going down below, but at top you hear very clearly, and once you notice it, you'll never unhear it. So listen for it as it comes back in, up in the very high register. Let's play that clip again. Here it comes. Hear it that time? Already, the film is giving us a hint as to what we can expect. The Imperial March played everywhere. In fact, with few exceptions, the Imperial March plays almost every time we cut back to the Imperial fleet, which is how most of the movie is editorially structured. We see what our heroes are up to, then we cut back to the fleet. We see what our heroes are up to, we cut back again to the fleet. Watch, rinse, repeat. Not to mention its full presence throughout the Battle of Hoth and when the Rebel Trap is sprung on Cloud City. In fact, let's take a listen to a very different permutation of the Imperial March. Now notice how terrifying it is 
in Cloud City, during the lightsaber duel between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, when Vader starts using the Force to hurl objects towards Luke. This is a terrifying version that feels very menacing and slow, like Frankenstein's monster is just closing down on you and you can't move. So we hear this flexible piece in a lot of different ways, and as we go through, I'll, I'll keep pointing out more and more as they show up. But as much as we hear the Imperial March throughout Empire, it certainly isn't the only piece of new music that this sequel treats us to. Far off in the distance, hiding deep in the swamps of Dagobah, another musical theme will emerge to fight the darkness. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. When bringing Yoda to life, John Williams, it seems, went the opposite way from the Imperial March. Yoda's theme is perhaps the most hopeful and beautiful piece in all of Empire. Let's take a listen.
Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Here's what John Williams had to say about this piece in the original Empire Strikes Back double LP liner notes. Quote, The orchestra plays with sensitivity and great tenderness a theme which represents Yoda's honesty, simplicity, and wisdom. End quote. Let's take a closer look musically at this piece. There's a lot to break down here. The first thing I want to point out is that it has a very different melodic language than, say, Princess Leia's theme. If you remember Leia's theme, it was built on an interval called A Major Sixth. I play it down here. But Yoda's theme, however, in keeping with the hero's journey of the Jedi, starts with a perfect fifth. Just like the main title. Only instead of going up a fifth, it goes down. As in... But that interval is the same. Now, there's tremendous storytelling also in this melody. First of all, consider that while the notes seem to gently and gracefully fall in pitch, they always jump back up to greater interval leaps. You start here, and you go down, but you go back up, and you go down, and you go up even higher, and then, and then here's a huge one, way over an octave. So there are two interesting things to note about this melody. The first being that it takes that same initial interval leap as the main title, or Luke's theme, which immediately puts it into relation to that theme, but does it in a way that is more seasoned, more experienced, not as brash and filled with youthful bravado as... Another reason we feel this grounded feeling in Yoda's theme is that while the chords and the melody progress upwards, there is a sustained note that is anchored on the bottom, giving it this solid, secure feeling of grounded wisdom. It's incredibly powerful. And while it starts with a similar interval as Luke's theme, it tops out, or peaks, in a very different way melodically. Luke's theme, or the main title, is all about the gold medal. It's all about big achievement, the destruction of the Death Star, saving the galaxy. We peek out at the tonic, or root, of the chord. Whereas Yoda's theme features a peak that is born out of tension and release. as it cadences there. It falls down ever so slightly, that half step, and it lands on the most emotional note in any chord, which is the third. Right, if you have a perfect fifth interval, what gives you that emotion of, of happiness and harmony is the third. It demonstrates a deeper understanding of the full scope of existence, our strengths, our flaws, our relationship to the galaxy around us, and maybe to the Force. The second thing I wanted to mention about this melody is how it compares to the dominant theme of this movie, the Imperial March. 
The march is oppressive. It's constantly quelling an uprising or a rebellion, melodically. Every time the melody rises, it gets squashed back down, especially here. It's gonna get squashed. Yep, it's gotta go back down. It gets put back in its place. There's no escaping the relentless march of Darth Vader and the Galactic Empire. Death will always greet you with their hands, no matter how hard you struggle to break free. No, it's always gonna come back down to here. Whew, whew, yikes, what was I saying? Ah, yes, Yoda. Whereas Yoda's melody is the antidote, it's the exact opposite. It is constantly falling, yes, only to rise to greater heights, out of the swamp, greater emotion, greater strength and purpose, and is ultimately, as we know, victorious. A great micro example of this is when Yoda uses the force to pull Luke's X-Wing out of the swamp. We see this ship, something broken, something lost, come back to life. It's a metaphor for how the force and the new hope can potentially heal the galaxy. Listen to how much work the music is doing to make us feel this way in the following clip. Wow. Wow, that's just so wonderful. It just pulls at our heartstrings, at our spiritual core, or any sort of existential tendencies we might have. But keep in mind, Yoda, the character that this music is written for, is a green rubber puppet. This was a huge risk. George Lucas bet his entire financial existence and career on this working you see, we take it for granted now, but back in 1978 and 79, if Yoda wasn't going to be convincing, this whole movie would have collapsed like a house of cards. And as we obviously know now, it was a risk that paid off. George Lucas was right. Through the magic and genius of Jim Henson and Frank Oz and his team of puppeteers, as well as the technicians at ILM, Yoda came to life on set. And then I'm sure George Lucas knew, in fact, maybe it was part of his confidence in pulling this off, that at the end of the production, John Williams was going to come in and provide the magic that we just heard. Before moving on from Yoda's theme, there is just one more example of great melodic storytelling in this piece of music that I'd like to discuss. The middle section of Yoda's theme features an almost playful, bouncing section. Let's listen. 
To me, this lightheartedness has always been Yoda's ruse. It's the telling of Luke meeting Yoda and not knowing who he is, and then the eventual training of Luke. And as the chords go more minor here, the training gets harder, but then ultimately it leads Luke back to the rebellion. What do I mean by lead us back to the rebellion? Well, it's this last bit here, right? Right, it goes like that, and then it does again. And then it, it switches to this. This is really interesting. It does this. That's right. The chords... There's that fun sort of flat 7 major to 5 major in there that kind of gives you that, uh, that outline of the rebel fanfare in Yoda's theme. It's a nice little Easter egg. I don't think it's a coincidence that Williams used this as the turnaround that gets us back to the reprise of the main Yoda theme. Yoda is, from afar, supporting the Rebel Alliance, and in training Luke, the new hope for the Rebellion grows even stronger. Speaking of Rebellion, I want to play one more theme today, as it's a very important development for our main characters. Musically, John Williams, in this movie, is also telling a love story. Earlier, we were talking about the opening interval of Leia's theme, the major sixth. It's important to keep this melody in mind, as it will come back to us again and again throughout the Star Wars saga and beyond, but we'll discuss that when we eventually cover Indiana Jones. But anyway, the melody for Han Solo and the Princess, the love theme of Empire, grows out of Leia's theme. You see, this Han Solo and the Princess melody, the love theme of Empire, is told from Leia's perspective, not Han's. It opens up with that same major sixth, and then acts as a variation of Leia's theme as the melody changes. Instead of... It does this. And then it repeats. But when it repeats, it says the same melodic line again, only not as strongly. It retreats as Leia is cautiously guarding herself from a man who has a less than scrupulous history, who has yet to fully prove himself as trustworthy. Han Solo is, after all, a character that has recently been at a crossroads. Is he a scoundrel? Or is he a hero? Here is Kirsch, the director, giving a vintage interview about their relationship. There's a love scene. We call it a love scene. It's actually a scene that leads to a kiss, which is the equivalent of a, a major love sequence of another film. And uh, the music is a very, very important part of it. It's integral to the scene because there are only about uh, seven lines in the entire sequence. Uh, and the music is the dialogue in that particular scene. It tells us 
what she's feeling because actually uh, the two people are in open conflict but uh, the music says ah what you're seeing is maybe conflict but that's a game because actually uh, I think they're falling in love the music is playing counter to the dialogue on screen the fighting that they're doing is betrayed by the music in terms of what their real feelings are as Ricard Wagner would say characters people can mislead each other. They can disguise their true intentions. But the orchestra never lies. These two are falling for each other. Let's listen to how the first melody, Leia's theme, is stated early in the film, as Han and Leia begin to interact for the first time. Listen to how the love melody then emerges as a variation from Leia's theme. General, I gotta leave. I can't stay anymore. Sorry to hear that. Well, there's a price on my head. If I don't pay off Jabba the Hutt, I'm a dead man. A death march's not an easy thing to live with. You're a good fighter, Solo. I hate to lose you. Thank you, General. Uh-huh, there's Leia, and here's Leia's theme. Well, Your Highness, guess this is it. That's right. Don't get all mushy on me. So long, Princess. And now the variation, the love theme between Han and Maya. Han, we need you. We need? Yes. Well, what about you need? I need. I don't know what you're talking about. Probably not. And what precisely am I supposed to know? Come on. You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me? Yes. You're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. No. That's not it. Come on. Uh-huh. Come on. You're imagining things. Am I? Then why are you following me? Fredo's gonna leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? I just assumed he's a Wookiee. I can arrange that. You can use a good kiss! The melody contains its notes of caution until Han is about to be put into carbon freeze. This is when we hear the melody really soar with abandon. Let's take a listen to the final scene that we heard previously in the spotting session, this time with final music driving the emotion. I love you. I know. just getting started with The Empire Strikes Back. Next time, we'll discuss some themes that we may have previously overlooked when watching Empire, as well as some major set pieces like Cloud City and the Battle of Hoth. As always, I'm looking forward to hearing from you and getting your feedback on the show. Please send me an email to show at iheartpodcastnetwork.com. That's show at iheartpodcastnetwork.com. 
I-H-E-A-R-T, podcastnetwork.com. Yes, The Soundtrack Show and How Stuff Works is now a part of iHeartRadio. You can also follow The Soundtrack Show on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. Thank you. Thank you.